0: Um, We're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for Junior Church. I think both groups are going today. As they uh, are dismissed, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and verse 19. Philippians 2, and verse 19. In the secular world, and in the religious world, there is, I think, a fairly clear understanding and agreement in relationship to the power of good examples. Uh, People around us that challenge us by how they live. Uh, That's captured often in the secular world in the realm of advertising. Uh, Advertisers know that powerful examples motivate people to buy their products. So for the (coughs) very simple end of making more money, they will sign people up and use them as endorsements of their products. you might find someone like LeBron James endorsing Gatorade with the thought that if I drink Gatorade, then I can play basketball like LeBron James. Okay, it's, and it's almost like that simple. If you've ever eaten Wheaties, I ate Wheaties when I was younger. I don't eat breakfast very often anymore, but when I was younger, I ate Wheaties. And remember always, you look at those pictures on the front of the box, they were recognizable <clears throat> athletes, and the implication of their picture being on the front of the box is this. They eat Wheaties whether they do or not is irrelevant but the implication is they do and if you do you'll be like them so immediately after uh, the swimmer that won all those medals uh, just about a year or so ago once he had achieved that goal automatically he started seeing his picture on the front of Wheaties boxes with the implication that if you want to look like that and swim like that and achieve and perform like that then eat this product and their example has a following. The same thing is true in the context of the church. Paul understood the power of good models and of good examples. And I think this morning we can make this observation. All of us are looking for good examples. We're looking for people whose lives in Christ we can emulate. And all of us ought to seek to be good examples. Because the church desperately needs people who step up to the plate and really become truly devoted followers of Jesus in a way that if people follow them, it will be a good thing. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul points to three examples, powerful examples, of people that you can emulate the behavior of and do it safely. All of it. One is Jesus Christ, verses 2 through 12. The example of the incredible servant, our Savior. And then in verses 19 and following, down through verse 30, he picks up the names of two individuals who he wants to hold up as examples of what God wants us to be in our Christian life. Their names are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Two examples that you can safely pattern your life after And become, in following them, what God wants you to be. Just as athletic achievement and skill can be put forth as an example and people seek to aspire towards it, so it is true in Christian character that we can observe good examples in the Word of God and be challenged to compare our life to the mirror of their life. To see how do we measure up in becoming people that are effective in the cause of Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul makes this observation. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life that is consistent with the pattern of Jesus. Then when he falls into chapter 2, after finishing that paragraph, he talks about Jesus, and he talks about Timothy, and he talks about Epaphroditus. And his clear intention and purpose is this, that by following examples like them, Okay, you will become one who is worthy of the calling of the name Christian little Christ is what that word means. You will be worthy of that. What I'd like to do this morning, beginning in verse 19 and following, is to look at the names Timothy and Epaphroditus and just to draw out from their lives a few principles that will help us in terms of how we can become good examples and good followers of the Savior Jesus. Verse 19, I want to begin reading. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else. This is where he drifts into this reflection on Timothy. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because... As a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident that the Lord, in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary, and so here's the difference. He wants to send Timothy. He must send Epaphroditus. And he hopes that he himself can also go. Okay? That's the flow of the text. <clears throat> I think it necessary that it is essential that I send back to you, Epaphroditus. Now, you may wonder, okay, what's the storyline here? How did Epaphroditus end up becoming the one that Paul needs to send back? The implication is, if you go to chapter 4, just flipping ahead a few verses, to verse 18, here's what Paul says. He says, I have received full payment, and even more, I am amply supplied, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Okay, so along with this letter, or prior to this letter, the Philippian church had sent a gift to Paul to support him during his time in prison. Okay, because Philippians is a prison epistle. Okay, written from a place of confinement. So, he's sending Epaphroditus back, verse 25. He says, of him, he is my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, or sent one whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me the sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. Fascinating statement to me. Risking his life to make up for the help that you were unable to give me. So this morning I'd like us to focus our attention on two friends of Paul's that he holds up as powerful examples or models. And and as I do this, here's the way I'd like you to think about this. My my challenge to you this morning is this. Be a friend who encourages those around you. Okay? Don't be a bummer. Be a friend who encourages those that come into your sphere of influence. And as you look at Paul's commendation of Epaphroditus and Timothy, I think just four basic thoughts flow out of this text that if we begin to emulate these things, we will find that we become more and more of a blessing to those that are in our sphere of influence. So let's look at verse 20 to make the first observation this morning. Paul says of Timothy, whom he hopes to send soon, isn't ready to, but he hopes to. He says, I have no one else like him. Which is to say something like this. Timothy has attributes, characteristics that are uncommon. Okay, they're, they're uncommon characteristics. I don't have anyone else like him. Who takes, and here's the way in which Timothy is unique. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He is genuinely concerned for your well-being, for your spiritual standing with God. He really, genuinely cares. And Paul can say before, he says, I have no one else like him who will genuinely care for you as I do. If I want to be a man, a woman, a young person who has an impact in the life of those around me, one of the first decisions that I need to make is this. I need to cultivate a genuine concern for the well-being of others. Okay, I need to cultivate a genuine concern, an active concern for the well-being of others. If I was to try to summarize that statement in a word, I would probably use the word compassion. Timothy really cared about others. And Paul can say of him that this genuine concern is a rare commodity or character trait. There's no one quite like him in Paul's sphere of influence because he has this genuine heart of concern. So this genuine concern is a rare commodity And it is cultivated by resisting a natural tendency. Okay, we all have a natural tendency. The natural tendency is to watch out, to look out for my well-being. Okay, I want to be happy. Okay, when you think about going out to a diner to eat. Okay, I can guarantee you something. The first thought on your mind probably is not price. It's probably the second thought. The first thing you think about is, what do I want for dinner tonight? Where would I like to go eat? Now, you may rule out some of those options based on the issue of price. But your first default choice is always going to be towards what do I want? That's a natural tendency. Paul says this, Timothy resists the natural tendency and as a result becomes a brilliant model of godly living. Verse 21, he says it this way. He says, everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Christ. If I don't make a decision to cultivate in my life a genuine interest in the welfare and well being of others, it is likely that I will live a self centered life. Okay, because that's, if you don't decide to genuinely care and serve others, you will find yourself genuinely being concerned about your own needs, desires, and wants. Okay, it's just a default mechanism that we have. Timothy resisted that tendency. Anybody that has raised children knows that you do not have to train your children to be self-centered. Okay, they, in a fascinating and predictable way, end up being pretty selfish. They know the word me and mine relatively quickly. They know what it is to say, I had it first. Therefore, it's mine. Okay, what is it? It's It's our sinful nature. It's our natural tendency. It's the default mode. Nobody teaches their children to be concerned about themselves and selfish. Why? Because it's something that you are always striving to defeat in their heart so that they can become a good, contributing citizen to the world in which they live. Paul could say of Timothy, he has his mind set on the needs of others. And I I think it's... It's it's fascinating how he says this. Look at this in verse twenty one. Everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Fascinating statement to me. What are the interests of Christ? What are the needs of Christ? I, to be honest with you, I don't have an answer to that question in the sense of saying Jesus needs this. He is completely self sufficient, Act seventeen says. So in what sense does he mean everyone looks out for their own interest rather than the interest of Christ, the needs, the welfare of Christ? Here's the verse that popped into my mind. Jesus said this. He said, inasmuch as you did it unto the, this is good things, unto the least of these, you did it to who? You did it to me. When I demonstrate an active compassion, a genuine concern, for the needs of others. I am caring for the needs of Jesus. That is a powerful statement. Powerful statement. Because can I ask you this question this morning? Could you honestly say that amongst your church family, in your workplace, in your home, in your extended family, neighbor, wherever it is, are you seen as someone who is in life for your personal benefits and gains and desires? To have them fulfilled. Or are you someone who is seen as genuinely concerned about meeting the needs of those around you? If somebody went to that in your, into your workplace and said, is so-and-so concerned about themselves or about others? Are they interested in their own career path or are they concerned about who's coming along behind them? Who do you care about? And Paul could say of Timothy, I have very few people like this. Because one of these outstanding characteristics of his life is his incredible concern for the welfare, the well-being, and progress and care of others. Husbands, this morning, can I remind you that this is the attribute of Jesus that stands out most significantly in his coming to earth? And so he says to every one of us as men in the context of our marriages, Husbands, love your wives. You know why he says that? Because he wants you to resist a natural tendency to love yourself. He wants you to resist the tendency to let you be the center of your life and to put someone else into the middle of your life. And that will be going against your default mode, resisting your natural tendency in order to be Jesus to your wife. And just let that expand out into all your other relationships. In chapter 2, verse 5 Paul says this, he said, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. It is not surprising to me then that he would look at Timothy and say, the thing that stands out most about Timothy is that he is so much like Jesus. He is given to thinking about the needs and meeting the needs of others effectively with a heart that is genuinely motivated, not by his own promotion, not by his own reputation, but by the needs of others. The test of this kind of concern is this. How often do the needs of others alter my personal plans? Okay, How often do the needs of others and, and the desire to meet them, how often does that literally change my calendar for the day, affect the use of my spare time? Because I think this is where we really have to test ourselves. It's not that we see needs around us, that we acknowledge that they're there, that something should be done. <clears throat> but is my life, in terms of the use of my time, ever directly impacted by the need that somebody else has? And this is not a question I would want you to answer out loud. Okay? But I would ask you just to think into your past week, into yesterday, and ask yourself, was there any time that I should have altered my personal plans in order to more effectively serve someone else? May have happened with your mate. May have happened with your kids. A distant relative. I don't know. But I am not demonstrating genuine concern until that concern begins to alter the trajectory and plan of my daily life. Paul can say of Timothy, Timothy allows his life to be deeply affected by the needs of others. As you come into church this morning, as you started interacting with people this morning, Did you come to say, God, use me today? Allow me to serve a brother or sister in Christ. Allow me to be an encouragement to somebody who has a need that I may not even be aware of yet. Speak to me and use me to assist them and to help to meet the needs that they're facing. Be in this way like Timothy. Cultivate a genuine concern for the well-being of others. Verse 22 leads us into this this next thought. He says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself. And the idea here of proving himself is, he's been through circumstances where needs were present, and he has effectively and sacrificially met those needs. That's the idea. He is a proven commodity. Timothy has a reputation that precedes him. A reputation is something you earn. Timothy has a proven quality in his life. Because And notice what he says. Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Okay, Paul could look back on his interactions with Timothy, who by the way, when you read the book of First Timothy, you find out that he is not a stellar, perfect example of a leader in the church. He had issues that he wrestled with. And Paul wrote that letter to challenge him to man up, to stand up, to be the man of God. But here's an area in which Timothy had it nailed down, and was doing so well. He proved himself to be a faithful servant of Christ. So the second observation that we can make about Timothy is this. He was determined to be a reliable worker or servant in the church of Christ. A reliable servant and worker in the church of Christ. And notice what Paul says, in light of that reputation that comes with all of us, all of us have some type of reputation that goes with us. Verse 20, 28, he says this. Therefore, okay, in light of, I'm sorry, verse, I'm giving you the wrong verse. Verse 23, he says, I hope, therefore, in light of what? In light of his faithful service, I, what is Paul saying? Paul says, I know that when he gets to you, he will bless you. Because as he was with me, he was just consistently proven to be a very helpful man who had a Christless or a Christ-like, selfless attitude wrapped around his very life. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. Paul's saying, look, as soon as I am able to free him up and send him to you, I anticipate that when he gets there, he will prove again, based on his reputation, to be a blessing. Okay, so the first thought is a genuine concern for others. The second thought that emerges in what it means to be an encouraging friend is that we determine to be reliable workers or servants in our sphere of influence. I think a smile comes to Paul's face as he thinks about sending Timothy, as he thinks about the impact that Timothy's life will have when he enters the city of Philippi and begins to interact with the church. He knows there will be joy. And so he can say, I send him. With a smile on my face. Because of what Proverbs 29, 25, 19 says. Proverbs 20, 19, 25, 19 says this. It says, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Okay? Confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You ever had a fractured tooth or a tooth that you thought was in trouble and you're eating popcorn? You know how you chew? All on one side, okay? <laughs> and very, very carefully. Why? Because you know that if you strike that tooth with a kernel of unpopped popcorn, you're going to be in a world of hurt. It's unreliable, okay? I've had experiences like that where I had a tooth that was just in trouble, okay? And it's it's every time you're eating, you're like chewing halfway. You're being careful. You can't trust in it, rest in it. Okay, last May, I damaged something in my left knee. I still don't know what the issue is. I had the prescription to go and get it uh, MRI, didn't get that done. I have this issue of being insecure on my left leg. I don't want to go running very much. I don't want to, definitely don't want to go hiking because I don't know if this knee will hold up. It's unreliable. Of Tim, Timothy, Paul could say this I know him. He is a tested, proven product that comes with a label, and the label reads, reliable. One of the greatest ways that you can be an encouragement to those within the context of your church family, particularly in the context of those that you serve with in the body of Christ, and in your workplace, and in your family, prove yourself to be reliable in your concern for the needs of others. Be a man, or a woman, or a young person who keeps their word, and you will transform yourself into an incredible, encouraging Blessing and friend to those around you. Paul could say of Timothy, when I send him, he's going to bring you a great amount of joy. Verse 25, he drifts into his discussion about the other gentleman that he desires to send, who has a name that none of us would probably use to name our children today. His name is Epaphroditus. I've never met anybody named Epaphroditus. He says, I want to send Timothy. Not sure if I can yet, but... Verse 25, I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. And then this is just this this powerful list of labels, of descriptives that he uses to describe Epaphroditus as he sends him back. They know Epaphroditus. Paul's saying, hey, for the record, here's my assessment of this man. He is an incredible individual. Notice what he says. He is my brother. He is my fellow worker. He is a fellow soldier who is also your messenger." Okay, notice, he, he, he's working through three observations about Epaphroditus and then he points back to them and says, you send him as a messenger to meet my needs and I want you to know he was up to the task. He had such character and such delight in his service that Paul could say it was like being with a brother, a term of affectionate relationship. He was a fellow worker, one who got arm in arm, linked arm in arm, and labored side by side, and he was a fellow soldier. And the idea of a soldier doesn't mean that they were doing war in the prison. But the idea is this, they were working together through tough times. Because that's what war is. Paul's saying, if I am in a a situation where things are tough, I want someone like Epaphroditus by my side. He is a fellow soldier. He is a fellow worker who stands up to the rigors of service in the battle of life. And so Paul can say of him, he was also someone that you sent as a minister to meet my needs. Verse 25, whom you sent to take care of my needs. And it's almost a sense in which he's saying, and what a choice Epaphroditus was. Such an incredible blessing. So the third thought that emerges as we read this about Epaphroditus, and this encouragement in how I can become an encouraging friend to those in my sphere of influence is this. Cultivate a spirit of cooperation. Okay, cultivate a spirit of cooperation. He was a fellow worker. He was a fellow soldier. He was a brother. He lived in the context of community and enjoyed being there with Paul at the expense of great sacrifice also. Of him, he could say he had a spirit of cooperation. And it's fascinating that when you then go into verse 26, notice what Paul says. Okay? He says, He's the one you send. He's taking care of my needs. He's such a great companion. Verse 26. For he longs for you all. And he is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, here's the thing that concerned Timothy the most. He thought that he was being a drag upon your spiritual life. He thought that he was costing you anxiety and trouble and concern. And that's what bothered him the most. That he would somehow become the focus of attention. When he didn't want to be the focus of attention. He wanted to be there as a servant. To help meet the needs of Paul on behalf of the people in Philippi. His deepest and chief concern was that he wanted to be a contributor. He wanted to be a man in his sphere of influence that added value. And as he was sick, he felt like he was being a drag on things. And he couldn't wait to get better, not for his personal benefit, but so that he could continue to do the work that God had called him to do. He had a spirit of cooperation. He understood what some writers have recently said, that we are better together than we are when we are apart. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 captures this idea of how cooperation in the body of Christ makes us better friends. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Okay, what is the writer of Ecclesiastes saying? Solomon is saying that when you work together, when you have a fellow worker like this who cooperates with other people for the benefit of the cause, you will find that life goes better. And as he writes about Epaphroditus, he's saying, look, Epaphroditus encouraged me. When he was sick, the main thing on his mind was that he did not want to be a burden to others. Don't you thank God for people like that? Who come into your sphere of influence not to get. Okay, and that's just... In the American culture, it's just the way that things tend to be. We tend to look for jobs based on what we can get out of them. We tend to look for churches based on what we can get out of them rather than based upon what we can do in them in serving the body of Christ. We have to fight against this natural tendency, cultivate like Epaphroditus had, this idea of being a fellow worker, a fellow servant, a fellow laborer. I think this, I think as Christians... I think we should be known in our workplace as people who seek to cooperate, not to cause division, not to get caught up in all the debates that take place at the water cooler, but we should be people who are seen as concerned about the welfare of others, genuinely concerned. We should be seen as people that are reliable, what they say they will do. And we should also be seen as people who are willing to cooperate with others, not always antagonistic, not fighting for our turf, but people who like Jesus, Pour themselves out for the benefit of others. That's what Paul could say about a man like Epaphroditus. Our problem is that we are often competing rather than cooperating. And I find it fascinating that the Apostle Paul would point out this characteristic of fellow, 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 of cooperation. When I think of the Apostle Paul, here's what I think. I think there's probably not another person in the New Testament who would have been more capable of living the Christian life alone than the Apostle Paul. I mean, if anybody had characteristics and attributes that could have made it through alone, Paul had them, but you know what? Paul refused to live alone in the Christian life. He was committed to being an encouraging friend. And so he engaged himself in these kinds of relationships that I think are vital to the health of our church family, that are vital to the health of families within the context of our church, that are vital to your witness in the workplace. Are you a person like Timothy and Epaphroditus? who cultivates a spirit of cooperation, who practices being reliable, who cultivates a genuine concern for others. And then this last thought emerges in verse 27 and verse 30. Epaphroditus was a man who stuck with his commitments. He stuck with his commitments even when the going got hard. Folks, let's make no mistake about it. It is impossible to look at the New Testament and study about the Christian life and come away saying, you know what, that's an easy life. It's impossible. As you look at the nature of Christian living as it is described in the New Testament, you will come away saying, you know what, it requires that you man up, that you woman up, that you young person up, that you be a soldier, you be a diligent worker, you make deep and strong sacrificial commitments. Why? It's not an easy life. Epaphroditus faced circumstances that would have shaken most of us out of the nest of Christian living. That would have derailed us. But I want you to notice how he responds. Look at verse 27. Paul talking about the struggles of Epaphroditus. His illness and distress. He describes in verse 27 by saying this, Indeed he was ill and almost died. He was ill and And almost died. Now, what does that mean? You know what it means? It means Epaphroditus faced circumstances that threatened his physical existence and he stayed devoted and committed to the task. We need to be people that, in spite of the cost, stick to our commitments. Look at the next two verses. Verse 29, I love this. Paul says, when he comes back, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor. Okay, isn't that beautiful? It, it, the, the thought that comes to my mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The desire on the heart of every Christian should be this, that when I stand before God, I want to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. I think Timothy and Epaphroditus were recognized by the Apostle Paul to be on track towards that end. Because they were cultivating characteristics that would make them great and encouraging friends, fellow workers in the body of Christ. Here Paul says this, he says, When someone like this is around, honor them, receive them with great joy. Why? Verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. Which now adds clarity to verse 27, doesn't it? Verse 27, you could assume that while he was there, he simply got sick and laid on the bed for a little while. But when I come to verse 29, I find greater, or verse 30, I come to greater clarity. He almost died for the work of Christ. Notice what it says next. Risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. In other words, Epaphroditus got there, he wasn't feeling well, but not feeling well didn't put him on the sidelines. He worked so hard that he pushed to the edge His very life so that he could be the servant that you sent him to be. Folks, that's the kind of sacrifice that I think the American church is not, unfortunately, very familiar with. I mean, we look at point number one, cultivate a genuine concern for the well-being of others. This takes us much deeper. It's not simply about cultivating a genuine concern. It's about being willing to sacrifice once that concern is realized that you jump in and labor... At personal, here's the implication, personal risk is involved in this step of obedience. An encouraging friend is someone that risks things for your encouragement and benefit. They don't simply help you when it is convenient. They help you when it hurts. In the first century, some writers have recorded about a group that were called, based upon this word, risking, in this verse, in the Greek, the word is, Parabaluminae. Parabaluminae, it was a group of people who were risk takers for the cause of Jesus. I read you this paragraph. In the early church, there were societies of men and women who called themselves the Parabolani. That is, the riskers or the gamblers. They ministered to the sick and in prison. And they saw to it that if at all possible, martyrs and even sometimes enemies would receive an honorable burial. Thus, in the city of Carthage, during the great pestilence in A.D. 252, Cyprian, the bishop, showed remarkable courage. In self-sacrificing fidelity to his flock, and love even for his enemies, he took upon himself the care of the sick, and bade his congregation nurse them and bury the dead. What a contrast with the practice of the heathen, who were throwing the corpses out of the plague-stricken city, and were running away in terror." I think I mentioned this to you about a year ago or somewhere back in in, in the month of March I mentioned something about this. Go back and study the early church. And you know what you will find? You will find that the early church was filled with people who were risk takers like Epaphroditus for the cause of Christ. So much so that they earned a label by their sacrifice. The riskers. The risk takers. Because they knew that being a Christian was going to be not an easy path. Not an inexpensive path, but instead a costly path. The Savior talks about this in Mark chapter 8 and verse 35. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now that is completely contrary to the world I live in. Whoever loses his life will find it. You know what we're thinking? i got to get the most out of this day. i got to get the most pleasure out of this day. The most enjoyment out of this day. The most enjoyment out of my retirement. So we, we, we spend our lives trying to get pleasures that fade away. We get them and guess what? Next Saturday I want the same thing to happen again. Or next summer I want the same thing to happen again. Why? It's not paying off. Jesus challenges us to do this. Lose your life. And find it. Try to save your life, and you will find it flowing through the fingers of time. Epaphroditus was a man who risked so much in order to obey the directive of Jesus. Lose your life, Epaphroditus. Even to the point of death, and you will find it. It's why the Apostle Paul, back in chapter 1, verse 21, can say this He can say, For me to live is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And to die is gain. But see, that can only be true if you know Him personally, in your heart. I close with one other illustration of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you have heard me talk about him along the way. He was a theologian in Germany just prior to the rise of the Third Reich. Came to the United States for a season of learning and as a result of his high intellect was offered pretty savvy positions that would leave him very secure as a German outside of the motherland and enjoying the benefits of life in America. He began to hear about the trouble that was rising amongst and against the church in Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to ponder something. He had to ponder whether he would Save his life. Stay in America. Enjoy and he and, and he'll admit he feels somewhat of a right to it. It was a, it was being offered him on a golden platter. But in his heart of hearts he knew that the church that he loved was in Germany. The people that he had nurtured and served. And he was faced with the choice of going back, knowing that he would not be a silent protester, but that he would vocally oppose. The hideous things that were being done by the Third Reich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would later write this. He would say, the sin of respectable people is flight from responsibility. That's a quote that has never left my mind. The sin of respectable people is flight from responsibility. Timothy and Epaphroditus did not run. From the city that was plagued. They ran to it. You know what kind of people run to it? People that know that if I die in Christ, that's gain. Dietrich Bonhoeffer got her on a boat and went back to the motherland of Germany. For years wrote against the egregious activities of the Third Reich. And eventually, as he knew would happen, died because of his opposition to the Fuhrer. Why? And better yet, in your heart, do you think, what a waste? What a waste to give his life like that, so well educated, with such a bright future, with all of the privileges and benefits of a good life in America in his hands? Did he make the right choice? Will you? Will I, when faced with the cost of being a Christ follower, will I cultivate, as Timothy did, genuine concern for the needs of those around me? Will I be reliable? Will I cultivate a spirit of cooperation, staying in there arm in arm with my brothers and sisters in Christ until the day that Christ comes for the cause of the glory of Jesus? Will I stick with my commitments in spite of the high price? That may come with my commitments. The book of 2 Chronicles. Chapter 16 and verse 9 says this. It says the eyes of the Lord. Range throughout the whole earth. To strengthen those. Whose hearts. Are fully committed. To him. I think the very truth is this. God is looking for people that he can use. Who are willing to pay The price. To be part of the risk takers. Who are, look, so encouraging. Passive people that sit on the side and never get involved are never an encouragement. They are a burden to those around them. The husband who does not assist his wife in his house is a burden in his home and to his children. The one who serves is an encouragement. And that same thing is true in your workplace. Go be jesus That's what Paul's saying earlier in chapter 2, isn't he? Had this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. He didn't think about heaven as something to grasp onto for himself. He set it aside and came and served. And he says to you and I, do what I did. Do what I did. And the end result is verse 11. Wherefore God has highly exalted him. We're afraid of the downward path because we wonder if there ever is going to be a payoff. Paul knew there would be. Timothy knew there would be, Epaphroditus knew there would be, and Paul had a whole host of friends around him who knew there would be a payoff. And so they gave themselves fully and completely to the glorious cause of Christ. When a Timothy comes into your life, relate to him, love him. When Epaphroditus comes into your life, embrace him, honor him, and respect him like we did this morning in Sunday school with Al and Peggy Horton, just to say to them, we love you guys. Thank you for your risk-taking Christian life. Because it challenges us. Hearing from Brother Victor John last Sunday, over and over again, to be reminded of the risks that are taken for the cause. May God help us. The last person that I mentioned this morning is Jesus. When Jesus comes and knocks at the door of your heart, here's my encouragement to you this morning. Receive Him. Receive Him. Respect people like Timothy and Epaphroditus, but realize they can't change your eternal destiny. Jesus Christ can. And when He seeks to invade your life through the good news of the Gospel, reach out to Him and say, Lord, I acknowledge I am a sinner for whom You died. Come into my life. Change my heart. I want You to be my personal Lord and Savior. And then I encourage you, embrace the task as a Christian of being a friend in Christ who deeply encourages those around you. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father,